0: An article in the USA Today says that 65% of Christian young people never pray with others. 38% never pray, period. We're talking about Christian young people now. 67% never read the Bible. 50% of them unsure if Jesus is the only way to heaven. But listen to this. Among those who claim that they are going to heaven because they have received Jesus as Savior. Sixty-eight percent of them do not mention faith, religion, or spirituality when they were asked what is really important in their life. By the way, you need to understand that I am not one of those people who is always blaming younger generation. I am not. It is my generation's failure to contend for the truth. It is my generation's failure to pass on the truth and how to contend for that truth that caused these statistics and the condition in which we find ourselves as a nation and as a church. In the past 30 years, churches have offered young people all sorts of fun and games and, and all sorts of gimmicks, and, and they're bent over backward to make unbelievers to be comfortable in their sin. We have done such an abysmal job teaching the truth let alone teaching them how to contend for the truth. And that what brought us to this point. And the psalmist that I've been quoting every message now asks the question, when the foundation are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is found here in the epistle of Jude. Contend for the faith. Turn with me, please, to Jude. It's only one chapter, and I want to look at two verses, three and four. Dear friends... "...although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our Lord into license for immorality, and thus denying Jesus Christ as our sovereign Lord. Father, will you please once again open our spiritual eyes that we may see the wonderful truth from your Word, and seeing them, believing them, living them, passing them on to the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw... In the last message, how the believers are called by God the Holy Spirit, how they are beloved by God the Father, and how they are kept by God the Son, and how they are doubly blessed by the Holy Trinity. And then he goes in after. He reminds us of these privileges. If you remember, I concluded by saying, with all these privileges comes a great responsibility. You say, what is that responsibility? Here it is. Contend for the faith. And he tells us up front that the Holy Spirit compelled him to change his message. Short as it was, he was about to write about salvation. And obviously the Holy Spirit led him, to change to an equally important subject. Probably the Holy Spirit said, Jude, Peter, and Paul, and James, and, and John, they all have written about salvation. I want you to write about something that is of equal importance to salvation, and that is to contend for the truth of that salvation. Amen. What does it mean to contend for the faith? Well, first, you need to understand the difference between faith and the faith. Faith is the act of believing. The faith is what we believe. The faith is the totality of biblical truth. The faith is God's self-revelation as it is expressed in the Scripture. The faith is the unfolding of God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. The faith is found in the book of God, the Bible. The faith is the fact that God made only one provision for salvation and for the way back to Him. The faith is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the truth and the way and the life. The faith is that only obedience to the command of Jesus is the fruit and is the evidence of one's faith in Jesus. The faith means that the Bible, not a fairy tale, once upon a time, but once and for all. It is written, and it's a closed book. You cannot add to it, and you cannot subtract from it. And that is why Jude said, once delivered, or given to us once and for all. <laughs> it's you take it, or you leave it. (laughs) You can't pick and choose. Well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. It is not a smorgasbord. (laughs) It is once and for all given to us. And that is why Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he could say with confidence, he said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Just as God once and for all created all of the galaxies, created all of the stars, and He named them by name, and He numbers them by number, as just as that is the Bible, is the Word of God being a closed book. But listen, I know, and you know, that we live in a time when those who claim to be Christians, they don't even know what's in that book. When we live in a time when preachers can wave their big black Bibles… And they say they believe it, but then by their very words they deny what's inside of it. And Jude is saying that the faith is a trust, that faith, we are the custodians of it. We are the stewards of it. And can you feel the weight of responsibility? Can you feel that your responsibility before God in the day when you stand before Him, in the day of accountability, and the question is, are we trustworthy of the trust? Several years ago, a dear friend made me an executor of his will, a custodian of his will. I will never do that again. <laughs> I love you, but don't ever ask me to be an executor of your will. Because for two years, I had sleepless nights and, and a lot of heartburn and, and a lot of Nexium. <laughs> because unscrupulous people were contesting what is stated in that will, and they wanted to change it. (laughs) And I said to them, do or die, I have to follow the desire of the one who entrusted me. (laughs) When we are entrusted with money and placed in our hands, God from heaven is watching. He's seeing how you use that money. When we're entrusted with time, God in heaven is watching to see how you're going to use that time. When you're entrusted with responsibility of being a custodian for the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is watching from heaven to see if you are trustworthy, if I'm trustworthy of that responsibility. Sadly, trustworthiness is like the truth. In our generation, that is, on the verge of being extinct. People say one thing and do another. And yet, beloved, listen to me, the very truth of the gospel is dependent on the trustworthiness of this generation, not only to contend for the faith, but to pass it on to the next generation and teach them how to contend for the faith. We just can't hand it to them We must hand it to them unmolested. We must hand it to them unmodified. We must hand it to them unperverted. Our Christian forebears were dipped in boiling oil. They were burnt like a candle. They were fed to hungry lions. They were tortured and they were killed so that they may hand to us the faith, unmolested, unmodified, unmodified. And so, my precious friend, this is the battle of this day, of this generation. And if we lose it, we will lose the faith for the next generation. I know, I know because I know me and I I know human nature. We all love comfort and ease. We all... By nature, love the praise of people. By nature, we all love the flattery of men. By nature, we all want to be so badly accepted by society. Who likes to be called a bigot? So much so that we are in danger of handing the next generation a modified faith, a molested faith, which is a false faith. Now, here's the problem. The reason we do not fight for the truth, we do not fight for the faith, is because deep down we really don't respect and love the Word of God. That's really the secret. We go from seminar to seminar, from conference to conference, and we wait with abated breath for the next book from Dr. Smell Fungus. We wait for Miss Super Duck to tell us what she thinks, And we follow this preacher or that preacher instead of spending time devouring the Word of God. Does it mean that we have to be contentious in our contending for the faith? No, not at all. Not at all. People misguided tell you that, but that's not true. The Bible tells us that we do that with a loving spirit. Uh, No bitterness, no hate, no anger. We contend for the truth with a smile on our faces and with a love in our hearts. Otherwise, they will see through us and they say, I don't want that kind of faith. And if they refuse and refuse and they refuse, you shake the dust and you move on. Because they are God's problem after that, not yours. But listen, we cannot contend for the faith without first knowing the faith, without first loving the faith without first living the faith. How can we give that which we do not have? And only then we will know how to contend for the faith. So you say, where should I contend with the faith? Should I contend for the faith among the atheists and the agnostics? No. They deny the faith. Should we contend for the faith... Among the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists? No. You contend for the faith, according to Jude, among those who sneaked into the churches in order that they may do an inside job on the believers. Those who have sneaked into the church in order that they may challenge and change and modify and falsify the truth. You know what the Muslims are doing? they say, listen to your bishops. Listen to your theologians. Listen to your church leaders. They are the ones who are now in agreement with us. They are saying Jesus was not divine. They are saying Jesus never rose from the dead. All you need to do is you listen to your Christian leaders. And they throw that at the face of the believers. And that, my friend, with whom we need to contend for the faith, because these apostates, those apostates are doing an inside job. For they sneak inside the church, just like the ancient serpent sneaked into the Garden of Eden. So well, Satan did a, an inside job on Eve and Adam. And I was thinking about this, how that principle actually even transcends times. And I read something that absolutely brought me unglued. It was written by Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher who died nearly 50 years before Christ. I often wonder, if he was living in the time of Christ, would he not be a believer? I want to read to you very briefly a couple of things that he said about those who go on the inside and do an inside job. He said, A nation can survive its fools, even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable, for he is known and carries his banner openly. But the traitor who moves amongst those within the gate freely, his sly whispers rustling through all the alleys, heard in the very halls of government itself. For the traitor appears not a traitor, he speaks in accent familiar to the victims. He wears their face and their arguments. He appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the heart of all men. He rots the soul of a nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of the city. He infects the body politic so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to fear. The traitor is a plague. I said, wow. When you think about this man died nearly 50 years before Christ, you can take that principle. You apply it to a nation, you can take it, and you apply it to a church. And when you do that, you'll understand what Jude is trying to say in verse 4. Look at verse 4. That's what he's trying to say. It took a pagan philosopher to explain it to us. He said, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, they have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who pervert the grace of God into license for immorality and thus deny Jesus Christ our sovereign Lord. You know, the interesting thing is those people never deny Jesus. In their normal service, they'll probably mention Jesus several times. But they're their very life... They are denying His sovereign lordship over their life. Hear me right on this one. These fake, these synthetic, these look-alike Christians, they are the most dangerous of all. And you would think that believers would be on their guard, that they immediately, as soon as they see this, they'll get together, unite together, and rebuke that person. But alas, history tells us otherwise. Why? Why? Here's my personal opinion, so I get blamed for it. Because the vast majority of Christians are not discerning. And that is probably the greatest tragedy of all. They're not discerning. They got snookered over and over and over again. And the question is, what do you do when the truth is revealed? Sadly, most Christians think that it is kindness to let them walk all over us. It is kindness to let them keep on causing their damage. It's kindness to just let them keep infecting even the faithfuls. Think about this. The first 100 colleges and universities in America, of the first 100, 88 of them were Christian universities. And they were founded not just as uh, nebulous Christian, but no, they were founded upon the gospel and the training of men, later women, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, including Harvard. In fact, back in the early days of the 1650s, Harvard students followed three basic principles of rules. Number one, that they purpose to study so that they may know God and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Secondly, to recognize that it is the Lord who gives wisdom, therefore they must pray to Him for wisdom. And thirdly, everyone must read the Scripture twice a day. Ah, what happened Deceitful people sneaked into Harvard and tens of other universities and colleges and they changed all of that. And that goes for whole denominations now. It goes for whole Christian schools or former Christian schools today. Because we want to think the best of people. We really do. And we're not alert and and we're not sober spiritually speaking and we just let things happen. And we think that You know, one Bible teaches good as the other. One Bible preaches good as another. We focus on their speaking abilities. We focus on their personalities. We focus on who is following them. And in few years, even those who once read the Scripture on a regular basis, they let that go by the wayside. In fact, the word that Jude uses here about those people who stealthily, secretly— Undercover, a good word picture is used when an alligator lying on the bank of a river, perfectly still, then without making a ripple, slips into the water. These people outwardly, they appear to be godly, but inwardly they are not. Outwardly, they speak all of the right words, but inwardly, they do not fear God, they do not revere God, they do not stand in awe of God. And Paul said, they have the form of godliness, but they deny its power. Oh, they appear to be so good. They appear to be so caring. They appear to be so kind. Oh, they appear to be so sympathetic. They appear to be so thoughtful. They appear to be so gifted. They appear to be so genuine. Meanwhile, their poison drip, 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 drip slowly into the souls of the unsuspecting. Apostasy did not start in our generation. Nor will it end with our generation, but every generation must be alert to it. Started in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came into Eve, Eve knew what God said. <laughs> it's not that she was ignorant of the truth, it's not that she did not know what God said, she knew it. But he just slowly but surely planted some seeds of doubt. As they say, the rest is history. The seed took hold and produced miserable fruit. Did God really mean that? Oh, my goodness. Just talk to the average church goer. Is the Bible really for our day? Is it really sex outside of marriage? Is all that wrong in our generation? I mean, look what's happening around us. Don't we understand that the Bible was written for and by generations gone by and that we just have to figure out things for ourselves now? Oh, Satan would say, Don't get me wrong, you can have a Bible study. <laughs> there were hundreds, in fact, thousands of Bible studies across the country, and they never cracked the Bible. It's called Bible study. Then in the schools, oh, they teach Bible. <laughs> they have Bible courses. They have a New Testament course, an Old Testament course. These courses are designed to tear up the Scripture, not put it together. And Titus, Paul said to Titus in 1.16, he said, They claim to know God, but by their action they deny Him. How do we know that? Oh, the way they live. What they're motivated with. When you challenge their immoral lifestyle, they'll say, Ah, oh, you are just legalistic. I remember one time asking a person who called me legalistic, I said, Do you know what that means? What's legalistic mean? He said, Oh, obeying the Bible. I said, Really? I said, let me explain to you what legalism is. Legalism is a word that's designed to explain those who put the rules of man, made rules in the church to be equal to the Word of God. That's what legalism is. No, 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 no. This is just your definition. But you know why they tell you also, you're legalistic, you're legal. They twist the meaning of the word. They twist the word, and, and they do this. But you know why they do it? They want to shut you up. <laughs> Once they call you legalistic, I mean, you back off and you don't want to say anymore, right? Jude said they pervert the grace of God. They pervert it. Listen to me. Grace is never a justification for rationalization of sin. A person who does that is an apostate and a dangerous person. Grace is God's unmerited favor, not a license to sin. In fact, this is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of an apostate. You say, what is that? No one who is truly a recipient of the grace of God uses this grace as a license to live in sin. Listen to me. Grace puts you on your knees with gratitude to God. Grace humbles you before God. Grace causes you to want to please God, not tempt Him. Grace gives you restraint, not unbridled passion. Grace causes me to blush when I sin, not to be shameless. Grace leads me to purity, not to perversion. The grace of God never, 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 never leads us to sin, and then explain it away as grace. These people are going to be judged so severely, And if you did not know, let me tell you, there are levels of judgment. Just as there are going to be levels of rewards for faithfulness. And these apostates in the church are going to be judged so severely they wish they never heard of God or a Bible or Jesus. That's how severe the judgment upon them is going to be. But today I want to speak to that person who's about to be deceived Into doubting the authority of the Word of God. I want to speak to that person, one person, who's about to be deceived into doubting the relevance of the Word of God to your life. I want to speak to that person who's tired, who's tired of getting convicted. I remember some years ago, somebody said, I'm tired of being convicted every Sunday. I've got to find me a church where I don't get convicted. (laughs) You might be tired of being convicted by the Word of God, and, and you want to hide from God's conviction of the truth. Listen to me, beloved. Listen to me. I have a word from the Lord for you. And the word is this. Wake up. Rise up. Stand up and see the victory of the Lord that He has for you. Our loving Father, You have done everything possible to give us the faith, the truth of the faith, through faithful people, unmolested. We are so grateful to have it for the way it is. And Father, I pray that you would create an awakening among your true believers, your genuine children, that they will be on their guard and be alert and lovingly contend for the truth, but also patiently, perseveringly, pass the truth on and teach the next generation to contend for the truth. Forgive us for all of our fluff. Forgive us for our shallowness. Forgive us for our superficialities. In these serious days, our Father, we pray for a serious spirit. And may cause us to bend our knees in gratitude for the grace of God. Father, I pray this.